Hi, I'm Simon Devereaux, Director of Global Talent Development at Framestore, and welcome back to the Framestore podcast, episode 14, part two. On Monday's episode, we engaged visual effects supervisor and creative director, Russell Dodgson, in our 13 question grilling, otherwise known as the Framestore podcast dailies. On today's episode, we pass the mic to this week's guest co-host, London-based VFX production coordinator, Sana Rahman. So without further delay, we hope you enjoy episode 14, part two of the Framestore podcast. Welcome back to the podcast, episode 14, part two, the second installment of our conversation with visual effects supervisor and director Russell Dodgson. This is where we hand over to this week's guest co-host, VFX production coordinator, Sana Rahman, who will continue the interview where we left off. So Sana, it's over to you. Thank you and welcome back, Russell. Thank you very much. First question is, how well do you think the integration between production and artists works in terms of film and TV merging together? And then secondly, within production and the artist departments? Wow, that's very specific. I like it. How do I think it integrates? I think I probably have kind of a, a slightly distanced view, obviously, because of what where I sort of sit. I think the shift from TV from film into episodic I think is probably quite brutal I mean to be honest I think a bunch of these questions I'd probably mirror back on you and get you to tell me what you think yeah absolutely I think the shift is pretty rough I think it's really hard to get your head around the idea of delivering constantly for that long I think there's always like kind of like this sort of adrenaline dump when you've delivered the first episode and you suddenly realize that there's like another seven to go I mean to be honest from my perspective I didn't really feel a huge sort of bump, even on season one. I feel like everybody handled it really, really well. I think all I can do in the role that I'm in is make sure that we have our side as buttoned down as possible with everything to do with, you know, editorial turnover and all of those things and briefing and making sure things are as clear as possible or making sure that it's clear that we don't know the answer right now. I think that's really important. And then I think production to artist. I mean, I think you've got to ask the artist. (laughs) Um, How do you feel about that? I mean, how do you feel it went on HDM? I think because HDM was, HDM was the first episodic show I had done. So like you said, I'm much more used to a film schedule where it builds and builds and then you deliver and that's your high and then you come off. Whereas with episodic, there was every week was delivery week. You had to be high alert, super on it, completely connected at all times. It wasn't just that one episode was delivering per week you would have an animation for example one week you could be delivering the final animation for episode three but at the same time you were then prepping the primary stage for episode four but also prepping the block stage for episode seven so there was a a big maintenance to make sure nothing got left behind so that was very much a wake-up call and like you said brutal But it was also fun to work that way because the rush was always there. 
I think it was quite intense. Yeah, it was intense. But it was intense for a lot shorter period than it is on film for me because we sort of started delivering animation from the end of June to like the middle of August. So it was like a two month period where it was just go, 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 pedal to the metal. And then it eased off. Whereas with film, it builds and builds and it just keeps on building until we deliver that final shot. So that's how I felt production and delivering wise. Artist and production really, I think because we've done it for so long and a lot of people sort of know the pipeline it's a great integration in terms of artists being able to speak to production speak to their coordinators understanding the schedule what shots and tasks they're working on which in a sense comes from clients and when you want to see things when you want certain things delivered just making sure all that is reflected in shotgun for the artist so from my point of view i think it's, it goes really well. It goes quite hand in hand with everything that we aim to achieve in delivering a show. I mean, I think that, I think what you're describing in terms of the way that the production runs and especially the staged overlapping delivery, you're kind of, I mean, we have the same thing when we're filming. So I'll be reading the script for episode six whilst prepping episode five, whilst shooting episode four, whilst briefing episode three and reviewing episode two. You know, and that goes on for a long time. And, the, and 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 I think the difference with filming is that the immediacy and the the sort of like to be honest, at times the panic is way amplified compared to production, because you turn up on set, and the second you turn up on set, you are burning thousands of pounds by the second with all of that crew, and you only get one chance, and the schedule's tight because the actor finishes that day. So the intensity level. Plus the overlap of all of the stuff is really mental. But so TV is basically like it all the time, is what we're saying. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I was going to say, do you sort of thrive off that intensity? Oh, I love a bit of chaos. I do <laughs> love a bit of chaos. I sort of enjoy it. I like. I, I the, the thing. I tell you, the thing I really like is that I'm really happy that I have done jobs where I have both ends of the spectrum. Because what's really great about shooting is you make your decisions and then you've made them. So it's immediate. And then post is post is about decisions over time. And I think if I just made decisions over time, I'd go mad. And if I just did the other one, I'd go mad. So I really like immediacy of decision making and, and responsibility. And then I like to sort of do the second part. I mean, post, even though it's mental compared to filming, is relaxing. Even though it's even though it's mental. I think there's always a little bit more leeway if things don't make sense you get a little bit more time to to work things out maybe in post than on film is that the case I've never been on set so I wouldn't know to be honest set is just sometimes it's like the wild west and sometimes it's the most buttoned down controlled thing where everybody knows what they're doing I mean it can honestly it can blindside you anyway you can have a day when you come on set and you think you know what you're doing and then an actor says oh I don't want to do that and then they go off and talk to the screenwriter for five hours, and then you've got to shoot the thing that you had nine hours to shoot in two hours. I mean, that genuinely happens. Sort of leads me into the next question. How do you sort of navigate those sorts of hurdles in terms of creativity on sets, having a different sort of vision to maybe the producer, or like you said, an actor comes on and says, oh, that's not happening today. I want to do X. How do you sort of deal with those sort of hurdles and come to a very sort of harmonious balance 
to get the shoot done on said day or just over a period of time. I mean, I, I think a lot of the times you get a sense that something could go wrong before it goes wrong, but sometimes you get blindsided. I think first of all, remembering what your job is and your job is to represent visual effects for the show. It's not your show. You don't own it. You're not in control of it. It's someone else's money. Someone's got, someone was working on it before you. Someone will work on it after you. So that's one thing. A lot of the a lot of the way that you cope with stuff on set is in how you communicate with the assistant directors. So making sure you're a step ahead of everyone. So you say, if this happens, this is going to happen. And if that happens, that will happen. And then they can start building those time offsets into your day. And then in terms of the creative, like a huge part of doing the onset work is about reading the room. You just have to be able to read a room really, really quickly and kind of go, you know, if you're if you see an argument between a producer and an actor or a director and someone else, you have to kind of know where the power is and where it's going to end up anyway. Instead of being part of fighting the battle, you've kind of got to go, in the end, that person's going to win and this is all just a bit of theatre that we have to get through and I can now start planning for the outcome, you know, rather than getting lost in it all. And I, th- and I think, you know, I think part of it as well is you just have to be very nimble and able to pivot creatively and I don't know I don't know what the art to that is I think you just kind of can handle it or you can't to a degree you know it's a I think there's a, a level of it which is just character you either have a character that can do it or not that's great thank you for sharing that and then just staying with set questions at the moment what is your like I know you said you quite like the chaos and you sort of thrive but what is the best part of being on set and what could you not do without whilst you were on set what would you take on set? What is your sort of safety blanket? Another visual effects supervisor like Rob <laughs> Duncan or Gav McKenzie. <laughs> I mean, the things you take with you on set is you've, you've already done beforehand, right? If you build the team of Wranglers, you build your team of all of those people and you've done the, and you've done the groundwork with the crew so they appreciate and respect the process of visual effects. That is the thing that you take with you every single day. You know, and I'm sure, there's, I'm sure that also applies when you're working in the studio. It's about how you build the team and how you surround yourself with people that have got an appreciation of your role. So that's about groundwork up front. It's no different from putting together a really good camera kit and taking that on with you every day only. What you're taking on is, is again, a bunch of sort of people skills that you've sort of built and trusts and relationships that you've kind of accrued. You know, and in terms of like what's what, what I really enjoy, I mean, the actual thing that I enjoy the most out of all of it is before you get on set and you're all sitting in a room trying to work out what you're going to do. And you're sitting in a room with a bunch of writers and producers and, you know, you're taking into account, you know, you're trying to work out like, hang on, we can't build a set there because that studio's already got, got stuff on it. So now we're forced to build it there. How can we build that so it works? And the collaboration and that kind of crackly energy that you get when people are trying to solve a creative problem quickly. Um, I really love that. I have a, I've got a real passion for that kind of that sort of state. And then if more sort of production or artists or just other people wanted to experience set or shoot life, what would your advice be to them? Where to start? How it all comes together? What to sort of look for? Well, I think there's two things. One, are you working at a company already or are you doing it freelance? That's a question. I mean, if you're working at the company, put your hand up and say that's what you want to do. You should always say what you want to do and not assume that you're going to get it. You don't get if you don't ask. If you don't ask, you don't get. Exactly. I'd say that. And then hopefully, I mean, it, you've always got to understand that it's very, sometimes it can be very difficult to get people on set. And sometimes the company can be so busy that it, even if you could get on set, it's hard to free up the people. You know, it's, it's a bit of a planets aligning kind of situation often when you can get people on set. You know, things like, you know, if someone wanted to come on set 
and I wanted to bring them up for two weeks. They now need accommodation for two weeks in Cardiff. Who's paying for the accommodation for two weeks in Cardiff? You know, it's like there's a lot of different things that you've got to make line up. All you can do is put your hand up and hope someone takes you along for the day because without seeing it and experiencing it, it can be really tricky. If you weren't busy working in a company, I'd say that the easiest way to experience that is to train up as a wrangler because the kind of the tools and the um, techniques you can definitely learn. They're skills you can definitely learn. And it's about and then it's about how you conduct yourself on set. And, and and a lot of people who wrangle, they kind of are getting a bit of a lesson in visual effects supervision, like on set visual effects supervision, just by proxy of being there because they see a supervisor working, they start doing more and more for the supervisor. And eventually you're kind of almost like, there'll always be a day if you're a wrangler where someone like me will say, I've got to go upstairs. Can you watch the set for two hours? And then actually for two hours, you are just VFX supervisor. And hopefully that hopefully the supervisor hasn't made the mistake and hasn't put someone in the position that's going to drown. They step up, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then you either drown or swim. <laughs> well, I've got a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, that would be ideal. <laughs> Moving on to his dark materials, because it's common for both of us. With regards to the show, what was your favourite sort of shoot experience or sequence that you really enjoyed working on or seeing come to life not just in season three but um what's the most been the most memorable sequence for yourself over the last five years yeah there's a lot of them i think the first time that i was presented on season one there was a sequence where there is uh, mrs coulter's monkey attacks and kills a, a bird demon in a sort of a quite a, quite an intense sequence that was one of the first scenes that i saw come together when I saw that, I just breathed out massively, as did the entire production, because everybody, like the showrunner and everyone I was with, I was in a room and I'd seen it already. And and I know, basically, I will show someone something if I'm super excited or super scared. I never show anything in the middle where people are going to be like, eh. I either say, like, this is a problem or this is this is going to get you pumped up. Right, they're my two, I'm going to show you states. So I remember seeing that. I was really excited because I was like, the guys have totally hit a level that will make everybody comfortable and I remember showing it I remember everybody's eyes lighting up everybody kind of relaxing in the room like there was a real shift where they went actually this thing that I've been scared of about making this tv show for the last year I am no longer scared about it and now I can worry about other stuff it was that when I was presented the first sequence of Yorick like running around a town beating everyone up I remember that I showed that to people kind of mid-season when things were really you know at mid-season it's always tough like you're already tired you've got a long way to go I actually did a cast and crew screening of a couple of little bits and the whole crew got so pumped up by it. Everybody came up to me afterwards and were like, this is going to be amazing. This show is going to be unique. The work that the people did at Framestore basically reinvigorated the actual shooting crew and made everyone push harder. Sort of reignited that passion. Things like that, You, like you said, mid-show, like you said, everyone's sort of tired, still a long way to go. But it's always nice to hear that something that you've done and it's been taken back has been shown to another group of people and it's sort of reignited them to get to the end. It's always a great journey, isn't it? Yeah, there's a lot of instances like that, I think. And then, to be honest, and then there's been loads of sequences that I've loved and then everything else that really stands out is just the stuff that I directed and then saw come to the end because they're things that I kind of, in some way, came up with, shot saw the post, saw them delivered, and then didn't get slagged off on the internet for them, <laughs> which is good. It's always a bonus point. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a lofty goal. <laughs> so leading on with sort of the shoot sequence, other than HDM, what has sort of been 
your best sort of sequence that you can think of at your time at Framestore that you've loved to work on, even if it was difficult to do at the time, you look back with really good sort of fond memories. I loved doing the Deathly Hallows sequence for Harry Potter, mostly because the people I was working with were all brilliant. Like the animation was amazing, the the style, the concepts were brilliant, the director was really, really great. What sequence was that one exactly? There's a tale of the Deathly Hallows, so it's kind of like an all animated... Oh, was it the Beedle the Bard story? Yes. Yeah. So that sequence, yeah. I do love that. Yeah. So that for me was, it was an incredibly artistic sequence. I was working with a really great compa called Adam Rowland, who I really appreciated working with at the time. He did a brilliant job. That is a career highlight, I think, just because of when it came along in my career and where I was at. That was really great. And then I really loved working on Black Mirror. But that was, I mean, it was great to work on, but the director, watching the director work on that, I learned a lot very quickly, just being around. And do you still get excited to bring ideas to life and onto the screen for other people? Like, do you still hold that passion? And how do you maintain that passion? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. But I really love it when people don't quite know what they want. And it's a bit of a um, back and forth collaboration to get there. Like, I really enjoy that. I always say the same thing, which is I am so I'm constantly like surprised and very lucky that I get to get paid to interact with storytelling. And it happens to be that visual effects is my medium through which I've done it. But really, I mean, all it comes down to is that any opportunity that I can get to work towards the goal of telling a story that people are going to watch, I love it, you know, and yeah, and that's it. Student film, short film, throw me at it. I love them all. Everyone, bring your short films to Russell. Yeah, that was a bad thing to say, wasn't it? <laughs> so now that you've finished His Dark Materials and you're, like I said, you're on a little bit of a hiatus, what would be the sort of next dream show project that you would love to get on? What's sort of in the future for Russell? I just want to have, a, again, I want what I do to have an impact on how a story gets told. And I want to like the story. I'm not a person that goes, okay, I now need to get onto a bigger show with a bigger profile and more money or a bigger director or a famous this or a famous that. That's not really my MO at all. I like things that I haven't done before that are challenging and are a bit scary. That's always a good thing. But I think, yeah, my main focus is having a role that has an impact on what the end result is like overall, like at quite a high level. Like my dream is always I get in really early and I'm in a writer's room talking about what's possible and building all of those relationships about trust and, and, and sort of trying to get an essence of what I can bring to the table across very early so that then I can have time to let that play out. So whether that's another TV show that's got loads of good characters in it. I, I mean, I love doing character work. I love having an input on that. Um, and I love working with really amazing animators. So, you know, which I've been blessed to do. I mean, I'm not really sure. I mean, really what I'm trying to do at the moment is read a lot of books find some stories that, I mean, I mean, I as an exercise on my own, I like read books and then write out how I would adapt them. So I'll kind of like write a treatment for what I think that show would be if I was going to do it. And then if, if I think it actually fits with some people that I know that make shows, I'll send it to them and I'll go, have you thought about getting the option for that book? You know? What's on that list at the moment? Uh, oh, there's quite a few. I'm reading a bunch of old sci-fi. I'm not going to tell you because they're <laughs> things that I think some people might find as um, uh, I'm reading quite, quite a lot of old sci-fi, um, which sort of like 1940s, 1950s sci-fis. I think you could adapt into something interesting. A couple of video games that I think are cool, but, but it's more like an exercise. It's the same way that before I started before I started supervising, well, before I started supervising television, the first thing I did was I started watching TV shows that were pilots that I hadn't seen before, but before I watched the show, I read the pilot script and I broke it down 
to try and guess what it would be like. And then I watched the show to see if I was remotely right. You know, and that, that to me, that was an exercise to see if I could kind of work out how long shots would be, how many shots there would be in a sequence, like what the timing would be, what the style would be. And, you know, I was right and wrong all over the place when I did it. But it's an exercise that sort of like made my brain, again, watch TV actively. Sort of trying to, yeah, teach yourself the skills. Yeah, because, I mean, it's amazing how many, how many like people go, kind of go, oh, I can't supervise until I get on set. You can supervise fine before you get on set by just watching TV shows and reading scripts. That's, the, that's where you start. And then just quickly, some Framestore questions. What do you think or what sets Framestore apart from other VFX vendors? I know we spoke about the people and the mentorship and support. Is there anything that you would add on top of that that is quite Framestore specific? Character. I mean, that's to me the main thing. I think there are lots of places in the world that can deliver really good environments. We are one of them and can deliver great effects and all of those things. I think there's very few places that can deliver character in animation the way that we do. And I think it's really special because of A, the impact that has on an audience. You know, like an explosion is an explosion. It can get you excited. But if you fall in love with a character, that character, a lot of the time you can watch a character when you're a kid and that character stays with you for your life. You know, like if you think about all, you think about the impact that, like how good the work that Pablo and the team have done on Paddington is. And how many kids watch Paddington and then they will have Paddington in their kind of heart and in their kind of frame of reference for life. You know, it won't be an explosion in a show. It will be that. I think that is really special. And I think it is the type of work as well that will be very, very hard to automate in a lot in a whole lot of time because it's so nuanced and so delicate and and has a lot of humanity behind the choices that you make. Yeah, it takes a lot of people to bring that to life, doesn't it? It absolutely does. And it takes a lot of creative management to have a whole lot of people make it and have it come out consistent. Yeah, like I said, it's very special that to have as a skill. And just in general with Framestore, what would be your sort of ideal vision of where Framestore goes in the future in terms of selecting shows, progress, success, company image and training? I'm going to give you a, a non-Framestore comment and just visual effects. I'd love to see visual effects companies take more advantage of the fact that they are incredibly creative entities that can fundamentally make an entire show themselves already they have all they need to make a show these days and i'd love to see framestore specifically get more involved in ip and have a you know i'd love to be part of developing shows that we're going to kind of take forwards it's a very hard space to get into and it's a very competitive space to get into and it can lead to issues with clients and things like that so i completely understand why it's a hard space to be in but we've got so much talent and so many creative minds and all the way through the company that I'd love to see that. I mean, I think there's going to be quite a lot of work to do with ethically rolling out AI. And I think that's a big thing. I mean, I think the, and I, and I really underline the ethical part of that. I'd, I'd hate to see Framestore get to that too late. I mean, I know that things are already starting now, to be honest, but that's very important. And honestly, I think just not losing sight of its identity, which is, a, is an amazing character house. I think like just that is so special that you just don't want to ever let that go. Now, I've come up from a running background. I didn't have any VFX knowledge and running really gave me the platform to be introduced to the VFX world and, and at Framestore. I was wondering if you've, obviously being at the sort of supervisor level, you may not deal with the runner scheme as much. Do you think it is a good scheme to have as an introduction into VFX, into Framestore, into allowing 
artists to come in and see what the industry is like and to step up into the effects? Um, I think yes, as long as it suits the individual. I think some people can come in and they can become a runner and then they can stay as a runner for too long because, you know, I don't know for whatever reason about whether there's spaces to move into. I mean, I know Simon's doing amazing work on giving giving the training opportunities to come through there. I think any any time that you can get through the door of anywhere and see how it works and sort of see if you generate a passion towards something is really important. Yeah, I, I think obviously you want it to be a shorter a phase as suits you, I guess is what I'm saying. And hopefully the company that you're in has the space. And like I said, with Simon and what he's doing, the training to help you navigate where you want to go through it. I think, I think you know, any company, your job is to help people improve. You know, yeah, you want to, you, you've got to make money, but you've also got to take care of people. I think those two things are really important. Last serious question, because I've got a few fun questions for you. Um, if you could go back and do it all again, would you? And what would you change, if anything? Uh, yeah, I would definitely do it all again. I think, I mean, so much of it is about, like, if, if I know what I know now, I'd have taken my family up to Cardiff for five years. In an, in, in an instant, day one, I'd have been like, it's going to be great, let's go, you know? And I'd have put my school, my kids into a school up there. Yeah, my kids would have gone to school in Cardiff. It would have been amazing. We'd have had a lovely time. That would be sort of number one. A lot of it is all about just like giving advice to yourself to keep going, but also be kind to yourself and do those two things kind of at times. But I have a bit of a, I am not, I have not trained myself very well over my career to take a break. I'm very bad at sitting still. You just sort of, okay, what's the next project? What's the next project? What do I, what am I doing next? Absolutely. Like not, and, and, and if you don't give your space to be still, I think you actually miss out on a lot of opportunity to have ideas. And I definitely have been guilty over the years of like not giving myself like breathing room between projects or during a project or taking a holiday when I really need to take it. I mean, when you're on set, it becomes very hard. Yeah, is that just because you love the work process or you finish a project and you're like, oh my God, that next one's so exciting. I can't pass that up. I really can't give you a clear answer. I mean, the thing is, is that, you know, do I love the process or do I love the feeling of being appreciated? And therefore I keep going back for that. You know, I don't know. <laughs> like, yeah. what is it? That, is, I mean, there's obviously a drug there, you know. Uh, you know, I mean, I know plenty of people who you can liken doing visual effects onset supervision to kind of, and I, I do this in a very loose way, by the way, I'm not saying they're the same. I think a lot of your life is about shared experience. And if you build a sort of, if, if, if like the shoot is where you have this kind of madness, then you kind of come home and, and, and it's very hard to relate to that madness. You sort of go, or you sort of gravitate back to the madness. I mean, it's basically at the end of the film, The Hurt Locker. He comes back from like, disar- like, putting, like disarming bombs, stands in the supermarket and he's surrounded by trying to chew cereal. And he's like, I'm just going to go back to war because I don't know how to do this. Yeah, that's what I mean about giving yourself space. Like training yourself in not working, training yourself in not having demands on you that are other than just your family. You know, I think they're all the things that I'd give myself advice about. And then really quickly, what is your sort of favourite TV show that you've seen that sort of inspires you still to this day? The really funny thing is that none of my favourite films have any visual effects. in. Oh, wow. Really? <laughs> so my favourite TV show, like none, none of them, like all of my favourite films, from actually, well, one of them, maybe. My favourite films of my childhood are all John Hughes films, like Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I love that movie. And all of those kind of films. Yeah, well, that whole era of cinema for me was just, like, very sort of important. Monty Python, those films, they have visual effects in. But Monty Python, all of those movies, um, and then TV shows, it's all things like... My favourite TV show of all time is probably Friday Night Lights. Have you heard of that? I may have heard it in passing, 
but I can't say I've ever seen it. Yeah, it's basically a TV show about a community in Texas and high school American football and the pressure that, and basically the way that the town's identity it revolves around the kids achieving. And it's all sort of about this sort of pressure cooker and it's about community and family and it's all shot on Super 16 and everything is kind of very kind of like found and all the camera movements and all the camera work is very in the moment. That's why I like The Bear. I thought The Bear was amazing. No, no visual effects, no Marvel films, none of that is on my list. Uh, it's all coming-of-age stuff and family dramas. I don't know why I thought there'd be a lot more like sci-fi in there. <laughs> no, none, none at all. <laughs> my very last question for you, Russell, is if you could invite anyone round for dinner, past or present from the VFX world, who would it be and why? I mean, this is going to sound really... I mean, there's loads of people. I'll give. Uh, okay, I, I mean, I'd love to talk to some of the... Um, like the people that work with Ray Harryhausen, I can't, I wouldn't even be able to know their names. I should know their names, but you know, the people that really sort of went like pre-digital. Yeah. Like a lot of the practical effects I'd like to speak to. And I'd, re- I'd really love to speak to a really young Mike McGee. <laughs> I think it'd be really, really funny. I think it'd be really good value to have like a 20 year old Mike McGee around my house. What do you think about visual effects, Mike? <laughs> At 20 years old. <laughs> exactly. In your 20s. But a lot of it, I think, again, I'd like to, the stuff that I really wish that I knew lots about, which is how they did it all when they didn't have computers. I wish I knew more. I wish, you know, I know a good amount about it, but I'd really love to hear some sort of anecdotal insight into that. That'd be great. Thank you so much for answering all my questions. That's all right. Sani, you're a natural. Thanks, Simon. You claim not to have listened to the podcast, but you completely leaned into the serious questions and the uh, the fun questions at the end. I thought it was great. I had loads of backup questions just in case, but totally didn't need them. I have one question to ask, Russell. Uh, what, what episode of Black Mirror did you work on? USS Callister, the Star Trekky one. Great episode. Yeah, it was good fun. That was really great because it was a great script. And then I saw a director bring loads to that as well. So it was sort of like just layering like really good stuff on really good stuff and seeing how it all operated. So it was really, really cool to work on that. Oh, that's such a good one. That's such a good episode. And, and the other throwaway question I had, I know there's the characters and the creatures in HDM, but of all the creatures, and it's probably like picking a favourite child, but if you had to pick the, the creature you're most proud of across the whole HDM universe, what would it be and why? I'm not going to say it's the one I'm most proud of. That's not possible. I think the one that embodies the spirit of the show and the work is the golden monkey because it's the one that we managed to still do all the lifting but without it speaking which is, again, shows how good the character work is. But it's not the one I'm most proud of, because I'm proud of them all, sort of equally. It's an unfair question, to be fair. But yeah, thank you, Russell. That's great. Well, I'm going to stop. I'm going to hold back on the questions now, because you've been absolutely grilled for the last almost two hours. It's hugely appreciated, both of you. I know you're both very busy. It's a big chunk of time to ask for both of you. I'm not busy. Just, just go with it, Russell, just go with it. But it's been an absolute pleasure to spend that time with you both. I thought it's been a really, really strong episode. Before we go, are there any final words or anything you'd like to plug or shout about or say before we uh, we let you go? I always say the same stuff whenever I do this, which is just like massive thank you to the teams on HGM, like absolutely every single person, because, you know, that job has been the sort of like the job of my lifetime so far. You know, I've like, will remember doing it forever. And that is mostly down to other people. There's a kind of a point which, you know, like I'm really fortunate enough to have two BAFTAs on a shelf over there, but no, neither of them are really mine. You know, like if there was a way of like breaking it up into tiny little pieces without me not, uh, but I, I want to give them to my kids. Don't get me wrong. I want to give them to my kids. <laughs> so no one can have them. Um, and it's useful having a Cluedo weapon in the house. But <laughs> they're not mine. They're, they're just like the work of loads of people. 
you know, and they should all be very proud of themselves. I'm very proud of everyone and, you know, it's been really, you know, awesome to do and I'm going to miss it. Yeah, imagine that. They're literally representative, aren't they, of the, the work and the people and the, that, that experience that you've so wonderfully articulated on this, this series of episodes. Absolutely, it is indeed. Perfect place to leave it, and and a lovely call back to the start of the last uh, last part of the episode, which was about the people element and the you know the teams. So I think a lovely theme that's run through both of our both parts of this episode this week. So again, thank you both so much. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Sana, for the good questions as well. <laughs> Any time. <laughs> Smashed it. I'm going to steal some of those for uh, if we ever bring anybody back. <laughs> yeah, go for it. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you both. Well, that wraps up this week's episodes. What a great pairing and insight into life on HDM. It just leaves me to thank Russell for being a truly inspiring guest and Sana for being this week's excellent guest co-host. We'll be back where we kick off a month-long podcast run celebrating International Women's Month with another special guest from the Framestore community. Thanks for listening. We'll see you then.